Hello and welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, the podcast that takes you behind the headlines to explore the fascinating world of hedge funds and private markets. My name is Will Wainwright, and in the coming months we are going to speak to fund managers, investors and other industry stakeholders to discover the forces and trends at work in alternative investing. Perhaps I am biased, but I could not have envisaged a better guest for my first episode than a journalist, Dan McCrum of the Financial Times. He spent years reporting on the online payments company Wirecard, once a darling of the German stock exchange, now a case study in accounting fraud. Wirecard imploded in 2020 after auditors discovered a 1.9 billion euro hole in its accounts. But only after years of dogged detective work by a band of hedge funds, and a reporter who put his career on the line to nail the story. The Wirecard short trade was long and difficult. The shares kept rising even as more issues were exposed, and Germany's financial regulator Baffin often seemed more interested in protecting Wirecard and investigating its critics than examining the claims. But eventually, the truth was exposed, validating not just the reporting of McCrum, but the hedge fund short sellers whose research was crucial throughout. Short sellers, hardly popular folk at the best of times, have had to contend with a decade of rising markets, during which several funds have gone long only. But the Wirecard story shows the role and importance of their work. Dan McCrum's new book, Money Men, is a must-read for anyone who wants to better understand the work of hedge funds, and for those in the industry, it provides a fascinating and at times astonishing insight into the pressure, aggression and tactics used against short sellers. Dan, I've read your new book and I have to start by asking, are there mornings you wake up and think, did that all happen? <laughs> it's just an incredible story. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll appreciate that. And we have to get the name in, Money Men, in shops now. Yeah, as a journalist, you get, you know, you're not supposed to become the story, right? Rule number one. And this one took over my life and mm. turned it upside down. Every new chapter you think, okay, this is crazy. And then something else bonkers happens, like the hackers show up, and then the private detectives. And then my boss pulls me aside and says, yeah, this main bad guy we're after, he seems to be linked to the Russians. And he's got the recipe for the nerve gas Novichok. And he's waving it around to try and impress people, like he's some sort of weird James Bond character. So yeah, it's quite a story, isn't it? Yeah, okay, so let's take a step back. Maybe you could um, explain how this all began. You know, how did this little-known German online payments company enter your life? So the moment when it all started was I was working in London on the FD Alphaville blog, part of the Financial Times. And I was trying to write stories about companies that short sellers were interested in because it seemed journalistically interesting. Dodgy accounting, up to no good, maybe overvalued. And I was chatting to this Australian hedge fund manager called John Hampton, and he mm-hmm. just says to me, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? And I'm like, sure, yeah. It turned out it was this weird little company called Wirecard, which was worth 4 billion euros then, I think, and, you know, did something weird to do with payments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And you actually started your career at City in equity research. So All the I, way I'm back. kind of interested by how that background helped you as you started to look into this company. The thing that I learned at City was, you know, I learned a little bit about numbers and accounting and how that worked. Mm-hmm. I think the more important thing was understanding how the stock market worked and that interaction between analysts, what they're trying to do, and investors and brokers. And it's basically, you know, this competition for ideas. Mm-hmm. Is the share price going to go up and down? Mm-hmm. But really, it's that secondary competition between all of those brokers and analysts trying to get the attention of investors to say, ours is the best idea. Mm-hmm listen to us about where the stocks go up or down in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that it was, you know, the short selling activity, um, you know, going through the company books, identifying the real story behind accounts that really kind of captured your interest. Yeah. I mean, I think we met for the first time when I was working in New York, right? Yeah. And, um, and it, it was then I got interested in short sellers because they're a bit unusual. And you met Carson Block. Yes. So... What happened was, it was my job to cover hedge funds. And this Canadian company called Sinoforest got attacked by Carson Block. And what he did is he put out this report saying, it's a total fraud. Claims to have all these trees in China, but it's listed in Canada. And its board is basically a retirement program for old Ernst & Young auditors. And nothing about it is true. And the reason we cared was because one of the world's most famous investors, John Paulson, he of the big short in the financial crisis fame, was, I think, Sino Forest's largest shareholder. So my editor shouts at me, Dan, take a look at this. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. I sort of looked at this report and it was sort of full of all these pictures of, you know, places where offices were supposed to be. And, um, and it was just this sort of amazing, oh, wow, wasn't this what... I was sort of hoping to do as a journalist. Mm -hmm. And so I went to met Carson and uh, he was completely fascinating. You know, he's sort of, I mean, he's got this amazing backstory and, but also just the way he talked about companies, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these sort of theories about ones that were up to no good, you know, scuttlebutt about who's the tech CFO who's well known to every maitre d' in San Francisco Mm -hmm. for just spraying money around, that sort of thing. And I think he said something to me as well that I always remember is um, if you give a management enough time, they can always come up with a lie, which is uh, why he sort of tried to surprise them with Sinoforest just as they're about to uh, launch results. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so I sort of got interested in these strange characters, short sellers. And you, you met a real cast of hedge fund managers, you know, throughout the years you were reporting on Wirecard. I think one of the interesting figures is Leo Perry of Ennismore who was one of the first to really analyse and track this company. Maybe you could talk a bit about how his research helped. Leo Perry at Ennismore, a little bit shy, really smart. And so I walk into, it's a Cafe Nero by Mansion House. And I walk in and he, you know, he looks a bit like a hedge fund manager. You know, stubble, beige, cashmere jumper, probably a gilet. And... uh, and, he, and he's got this little sort of black satchel and he pulls out this sheet of, they almost look typewritten, dense notes. Mm-hmm. Spreads them out in front of me and he starts telling me what he's found. And what he'd done is he looked at Wirecard's business, actually a whole series of little businesses which he'd bought in different parts of Asia. And what he found there just simply didn't match 
what the company was claiming about them. Mm -hmm. And it was this trail that sort of added up to, hey, this looks like accounting fraud. And he's always like he's always very cautious and very you know not quite nervous, but you know very careful. Yeah, that sort of automatic. Well, it looks like fraud. You know, not like some people who are like throw everything against the wall. This is a total criminal enterprise. And it turned out he he had done the work on a whole bunch of frauds. He actually was one of the main guys who analysed Quindell, okay. which not many people know. Quindell, if you don't know, by the way, is uh, it was a listed technobabble company mm-hmm. which uh, collapsed. He had done all this great work. What always amazed me is what like Leo really stuck at it. Yeah, yeah. He like because we go and meet occasionally have coffees again, and he'd sort of you know he really helped me with some of it. And, and, and the way you work with short sellers, by the way, is sort of typically he'll show up, give me the information, then I'll take it away. And if I have questions, I'll come back. But then I go off and do my reporting yep. and have to like have to verify it myself mm-hmm. if, you know, he's not going to put his name to it. So just use him as a source. But sort of once all the stuff had been published, we, you know, we'd meet up again and be like, what is it going to take? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wirecard goes from strength to strength. Share price keeps going up. Leo and some of the other short sellers would just be constantly looking for some new angle. Like there was a change in German law, which meant that all websites had to disclose the identity of their payment processor, like in their code on their website. Mm -hmm. So he was going through, like he got a list, I think, of like the top 100 or more online retailers in Germany and was going through every single website looking for Wirecard customers Mm -hmm. just to sort of try and prove the negative to say Wirecard isn't as big as it's making out, it can't possibly be. And he'd write these sort of slightly infuriated letters to his investors saying, like, I remain more convinced than ever that Wirecard is a fraud, but, you know, the market doesn't seem to agree. It was only when Wirecard collapsed in June 2020. And again, it's one of those funny things about markets. You know, it was this moment we had all been waiting for. Are its auditors, Ernst Young, going to sign off on the accounts? Everyone knew it was coming. They'd been delayed for a long time, and it was... This is it. This is the end of the road. Either EY signs off and everything is fine mm-hmm. and Wirecard is a legit company or they don't and game over. Mm-hmm. They come up with this announcement. Game over. They can't find 1.9 billion euros of Wirecard's cash. And the crazy thing is there were so many people who had this vested idea. They couldn't believe that Wirecard wasn't the thing that they thought it was, this Mm -hmm. amazing technology company, that the share price didn't collapse immediately. Everyone who'd been paying attention knew it was game over. Mm -hmm. If you've lost, if 1.9 billion is missing, this company is bankrupt. But the share price only halved or went to about 40 euros. And it was at that point that Leo and various other short sellers sold as much as they possibly could. And that was when they finally made profits yeah. on this campaign and, that they've been managing for years. Because, you know, as you say, they knew what was going on yeah. years earlier. They had the shorts in place, but it's important to remember short selling is so expensive. There are big gains to be made, but until the, the shares actually fall, you're kind of paying money out. The thing which forced most of the short sellers out of Wirecards was in 2017. There'd been all this mud thrown at the company, and there were two theories. Was it an accounting fraud? Was it a big money laundering enterprise? EY comes and comes out and signs off on the accounts. Mm-hmm. And the German regulator Baffin announces it's investigating some of the short sellers. That year, the share price triples from like 40 euros to 100 and something. Yeah. 
And that's quite painful if you're a short seller. Yep. Talking about Baffin, infamously, they took some strange decisions throughout this saga, culminating in them actually banning short selling on Wirecard instead of analysing the claims. Do you think they've reformed their approach subsequently? There were various points from Wirecard's history where critics said there's something up at Wirecard and Baffin investigated the critics for market manipulation, including in 2019, me and my colleague Stefania Palmer. Mm-hmm. And Wirecard had cooked up this witness statement saying, speculators in London knew a story was coming mm-hmm. and gave that to Baffin and they're like, yes, we're going to investigate the Financial Times effectively. And one of the amazing things is, and this is this moment in the book where um, I sort of decide to help out one of the whistleblowers by sending out a bunch of dossiers for him. Yeah. And so I go to great lengths to make this as anonymous as possible, you know, wearing gloves, printing them out on a special printer, um, only posting them with stamps, Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. um, so there's no like electronic record. I put all these packages in the post and one of them goes to Baffin. And it's a bunch of documents showing that, you know, Wirecard staff in Singapore have been cooking the books. And then, you know, not long afterwards, the Financial Times story appears based on the same information. Mm -hmm. And I'm always staggered, because I got to see the case against me, that in Baffin's report, they sort of note that this package of anonymous documents arrived at about the same time and so seemed to speculate maybe it's part of the conspiracy, not some sort of good faith attempt to alert them to bad things going on. It seemed they were just viewing things the wrong way around. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's an interesting institutional psychology mm-hmm. question here, which is, in some respects, they were justifying their previous decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you've investigated the critics of Wirecard once... Kind of looks weird if you turn around and investigate the company, doesn't it? Maybe you should have done that before. Yeah. You had some pretty low moments throughout this. And obviously kind of being under investigation, having an internal FT investigation. Um, at one point, your editor, Lionel Barber, was speaking to yeah. you pretty pretty sharply yeah. about, about your work. What was the lowest moment for you? I mean, there's a couple of low moments. I mean, because I sort of put my entire life in here. And there's there's this period in like 2017 when I'm trying to expose Wirecard, but really I changed jobs. I was supposed to be running part of the markets team at the FT and I wasn't really supposed to be focusing on strange little accounting fraud stories. I was supposed to be fighting, you know, market scoops about mm-hmm. debt raisings and things. And at the same time, you know, we just had our second child. We were trying to build a house. <laughs> and so my life was quite chaotic. And then in the midst of this, some of the short start sellers start telling me that they're being followed around. And one of them has been menaced and that uh, Wirecard has hacked my computer. And we start getting emails from um, hackers showing them correspondence of other people, which includes mine. So mm-hmm. somebody's been hacked. All this crazy stuff starts happening. And the frustrating thing is, oh, and we're, Wirecard is threatening to sue us because I made a bit of a mistake. 
all of this crazy stuff is happening that we can't write about. So I don't really have a story to write about Wirecard. And then my career is not going well at all. And I sort of get demoted. Mm-hmm. And, and then, like I said, the German authorities announced an investigation into the short sellers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everything's fine. And at that moment, I, I basically gave up. I was like, I've got so much else going on. There are other stories. This one isn't for me. Yeah. So that was a pretty bleak, bleak time. Yeah. Let's talk about that mistake. So um, you essentially rushed to to print something that in hindsight you wished you'd gone through some extra stages. Yeah. So there's this notorious moment in the Wirecard story when the Zatara report appears. And that's... um, written by Matthew Earl anonymously and others, right? Well, so that's one of the, that's one of the new things in the book is uh, lots of people know that uh, Matthew Earl and a guy called Fraser Perring were behind it, but there were also um, a couple of other characters involved. Mm-hmm. And they put together this big 100-plus page dossier alleging all sorts of wrongdoing at Wirecard. It's a money laundering operation. It's in bed with former employees, all sorts of stuff. Because they realise money laundering is involved, they decide to publish anonymously. Mm-hmm. And they give me a copy so I can have a look at it. And I know it's coming. And on the morning that it comes out, I'm kind of like, this is it. This is the moment. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the big Sino Forest-like short straw attack when it's going to force the authorities to, to investigate. And finally, the truth about Wirecard will come out. Mm-hmm. Or so I thought. And in that enthusiasm to get the story, I sort of rushed back to the office, wrote a very short, quick blog post where I just sort of drew attention to the fact that this was circulating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, put a link into the report and hit go. You know, it, it was, you know, two or three sentences. I didn't really think it was a risk. And that turned out to be a bit of a mistake. <laughs> so that gave ammunition to those who were accusing you totally wrongly of you know, acting in concert with the short sellers. Yeah, very quickly, these threatening legal letters arrived from Shillings, one mm-hmm. of uh, London's um, more aggressive reputation defence firms. And they basically say the Financial Times has effectively published the whole Zatara report. And what I had done is assumed readers would recognise it as a short seller attack. Mm -hmm. But I should have said that as well. I should have said, these guys have money at stake. They're trying to drive the share price down. Read it with that in mind. Mm -hmm. And what that did was it meant we might get sued, which is not a good look. But also, it then meant we couldn't write about anything in the Zatara report. So all of these allegations were being raised. All of these issues were out there. And then suddenly the Financial Times, which is one of the few publications which have paid attention to Wirecard, goes completely silent Mm -hmm. and doesn't Mm -hmm. touch them because it would be like daring Wirecard to sue us. Um, So that just adds to the sense that, okay, these guys are up to no good and there's nothing to it. And the other thing is, it became such a great tactic for Wirecard. Mm -hmm. So when we then get a real whistleblower and finally can start exposing the truth about Wirecard, Marcus Brown, the chief executive, can basically turn around to everyone and say, oh, it's that Zatara guy. Yeah, we all know what he's about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And very effectively say, I'm a corrupt market manipulator. And their methods and aggression throughout this was staggering. I thought it was a really interesting 
the technological steps that you had to take to protect your work, the the hacks you received, the the hacks that um, hedge funds were receiving as well. Um, Greenvale did some really good work on this, and an analyst there was personally affected. I think Wirecard used this Indian hacker gang, who what they did is they created, I mean, tens of thousands of personalised phishing pages. So they would, and they would try all these different tactics to try and get you to click on a link. Mm. So I would get, you know, fake LinkedIn invites, people saying you'd shared a YouTube file with you, um, Facebook photo albums, things like that. And uh, Ollie Cobb, a fantastic investor at Greenvale, London hedge fund, um, who did a lot of work on Wirecard, he had this bizarre meeting with Wirecard's CFO, Burkard Lay. Mm. He was sort of offered a meeting with him which they thought was weird. And then he turns up, sends the broker out of the room, and he sits on you basically close. Yeah, I just wanted to look our most aggressive shorts in the face and see what's what. And then you have this short and not very productive meeting that's rather combative. Mm. And, but they're also thinking, what on earth is going on? We aren't even shorting Wirecard anymore because it was 2017, they'd given up. Mm. About a month or so later, Ollie gets married, goes on honeymoon with his new wife. Like the day he gets back in the office, one of these phishing emails arrives. And it's as if it's sent from his wife with a bunch of photos that she put on social media, mm-hmm. as if she's sharing a photo album with him. That's like the levels of attention to detail they Amazing. were going to. Mm. And I mean, he was outraged by this. But then they were, like, Greenvale was bombarded with these emails for months and months and months afterwards. So how did you change your approach? What steps did you take? So in 2018, I was contacted by a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And at that point, as soon as I was back on Wirecard, we knew we had to take a lot of precautions. So, like, when I went to Singapore, I just took a burner phone with me, you know, like a Chromebook. Mm -hmm. And I also took this um, this laptop, which we had removed sort of the, I don't know what the gubbins is inside, but whatever allows it to connect to like Wi-Fi and things like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was out. Um, so it was an air-gapped laptop mm-hmm. for me to put any secret files on. And uh, we used a system to encrypt those and you could basically hide them on the computer. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, we're also worried about like Singapore has a whole state surveillance thing to think about as well, never mind um, Wirecard. And then we were doing things like when, whenever we had meetings to discuss it at the FT, or even when I was talking to my wife, I put my phone in another room. Yeah. Because we just, we knew that Wirecard had certain capabilities and we didn't know, you know, what the full extent of them was. So we just had to be super cautious the whole time. All of these steps would be very at home in a spy novel. <laughs> uh, and yet that is what is required, essentially, for a journalist looking into this stuff. Also, for hedge funds looking into this stuff, you need to be so careful and sensitive. You know, it, it's incredible, really. I mean, so to use the Greenville example again, they were very cautious because, obviously, they've got a fiduciary duty. Mm. And so they bought in one security consultant who basically told them to replace all their kit. Mm. And then they bought in another one who said, actually, that wasn't good enough, so you need to do all of this, and had to replace it all again, Yeah, um, incurring a lot of expense. Mm. 
and time and energy just to basically make sure that your data and everything is safe. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and it sort of becomes secondhand for a lot of journalists now. You know, we operate on apps like Signal. And you just have to be very careful with data and how you're using it, how you're transferring it. Yeah, it's remarkable how yourself, your colleagues at the FT, you know, Paul Murphy stands out. The work you were putting into it, the work that lots of hedge funds were putting into this to really understand the the company. And yet it took so long for that story to really break through and have a market impact. Wirecard was a big company, but one of many thousands of big companies. Does it make you think there's got to be a lot of stuff going on out there and really not the resources to look into it? One of the great things about writing the book now is that I can tell all the stories of the stuff that we couldn't report at the time. Mm. The strange thing about Wirecard was sort of every interaction with it was strange and got stranger. So, you know, there's a moment where suddenly one of Paul's secret sources, who's a night, the guy who owns Fabric Nightclub, gets in touch and says, I've got this guy here who's chief operating officer of some German company. He'd like to have a word with you. And we're like, what are you talking about? How has Jan Marsalek, this Austrian bad guy, worked out who Paul's secret sources are? Like, Why doesn't he use a PR firm like a normal company? Mm. So it's only after Wirecard collapsed that you can sort of talk about all the weird, crazy stuff yeah. that was happening. And so, yeah, that makes me think that, well, I'm pretty confident there's quite a few other large financial frauds out there. How does this leave you feeling about short sellers and the role that they play in the market? Um, So I think short sellers are great. I just find them interesting characters. I mean, there's a few of them in the book and they are interesting, right? I mean, I also think they do very interesting work. You know, not a lot of people do it. It's quite hard, sort of analytically demanding and it's sort of journalistically interesting as well Mm. you know um, because we've seen a lot of short sellers exit the space you know there's been a move too long only for a lot of firms Um, obviously the market environment of the last few years has been difficult for for short sellers do you think we're entering a market period now which may be a bit more conducive to success yeah I mean the moment when nobody wants to short companies is probably the moment when you really want to be paying attention to shorting them. Although it's very painful waiting for that yeah. to come. Lots of people have gone out of business. Um, oh, there's a famous Keynes quote about this. The markets can stay irrational long you, longer than you can stay solvent, something yes, like that. because you've got to get the call right, but the timing also yeah. has got to be correct. The Well, the timing doesn't have to be right, but it's, yeah, you have to be aware of, you know, the dangers yeah. with it. There is a, a downside to that short seller mindset. Um, you know, some famous investors have talked about the problem is if you are too cynical and you're constantly looking for all the bad things that can happen, then you do miss, you know, the things like the Microsofts which come along yeah. or, you know, those companies which are fantastic and do just keep growing and growing and growing. So it doesn't serve you very well in a market environment like the last few years where everything just keeps going up and it's all about what's the back of the envelope calculation for the size of your market mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. also i know leo perry talks about how what he likes about shorting is the confidence you can get if you 
can become reasonably sure that something is an accounting fraud. It's definitely too good to be true. Then you know, at some point, if you've got enough patience, it may well just collapse to zero. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're sort of sticking your finger in the air and going, what's the demand for copper going to be next year? You know, you can't have that same level of accuracy or comfort. It's just a different kind of process. And I guess the flip side to that is, as a short seller, your losses are potentially infinite and the gains are finite. I mean, people say that. And also, I mean, we should say, like, most of these guys who do short selling also are very good long investors as well. You can't, you know, there are very, very few people who can make a living just from shorting. Because you're sort of hostage to these times when markets um, go up. But yeah, so the theoretical losses are infinite because shares can keep going up. But I think a better way to think about it is if you're short a company, let's say you've got a $100 portfolio and you spend a dollar of it shorting a company. Now, if you were long and you got that call wrong and the share price halves, then you've lost 50p. But your problem that you now have to think about is also much smaller. It's now a 50p investment, not a dollar investment. The problem with shorting is it's the opposite. So the price goes up 50p, and now you've got a $1.5 problem. And every time it goes against you, it gets bigger and bigger. It sort of compounds on itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what becomes really painful and hard to manage. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one other figure I want to ask you about on oh, the yeah. hedge side, and that's uh, Chris Hone oh, yeah. of uh, TCI Fund Management, uh, Children's Investment Fund. I think he played quite an important role towards the end of this. Yeah, so, I mean, he's, you know, terrific investor, amazing track record. And he also has that nice willingness to occasionally stand up and make noise about things. He sort of showed up towards the end when the Financial Times has started publishing a whole series of stories saying Wirecard's accounts don't make sense, Mm -hmm. there's all this fraud going on. And what his intervention did was provide a sort of a new outside voice that was respectable. You know, he had previously been an activist investor in Germany at Deutsche Börse. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't some anonymous speculator people hadn't heard of and yeah. he clearly wasn't in league with the FT he was just someone who had come along to the situation and said um, this doesn't look right something needs to be done mm-hmm. and I think that was very helpful what's next now for you you're still on the investigations team right yes well I mean right now I'm trying to get as many people to know about money men and read it because um, I've put all all this life and soul into the book yeah now I'm uh, if anyone listening has some good stories I'm still in the market Thank you to Dan for his time and an incredible insight into the Wirecard affair. There are so many lessons the industry can take from it. Please head to alternativefundinsight.com for my five takeaways from the interview with Dan. You can also, if you wish, sign up to the free AFI newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Any reviews would be gratefully received. And thank you for joining me for the first episode of Alternative Fund Insight. See you soon.